Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid digital and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Hey, Sam. Avery, how's it going? It is a wonderful fall day. Excited to start the week. How about you? Good. I'm a little jet lagged. I just landed this morning in Madrid for an event that we're being involved with. We have a big celebrity interview we're not going to be able to talk about until next week. But let's just say next week, you are going to want to know me even more, Avery. The internet's going to break. I can't wait for it. And how's everything in Madrid? Um... Unimpressed so far, but it's just because I had, like in my head, I was like, great, check into the hotel, go find some little cafe, have the best ham I've ever had in my life, and just nothing worked well. So I think I just chose the wrong cafe. I was too late to get the right meal, you know, three hours of sleep. So we're just running on fumes, Avery, but I'm very excited to be here with our friends at Stellar who we're doing a bunch of work with. And then I think towards the end of the week, I go to Lisbon. And I know you spend a bunch of time there. I love Lisbon. And keep your HN handy in case you need to do any immediate translations. I will. Keep your 11 labs at your fingertips. I don't know about you, but once I put my HN video up, I had so many people who were just like, okay, great. So I can do this now. And it's like part of my AirPods and it's in my phone. And especially people who are not like deep into tech. Right. In their mind, it was like, how soon is this thing happening? And I was like, I think we still got a couple of years, but I wanted to know your thoughts on soonness. I think a couple of years feels right. Same thing happened to me. I think I told you this. I posted this and a lot of my clients were like, wait, do me. Um, and <laughs> a lot of people I know were very surprised. I know a ton of Indian people. So they were also like, it sounds like you. And it was actually funny because I was also reading the hater comments were like, that's not how normal people speak Hindi. And it's like, of course it isn't. It's like a textbook translation. It doesn't have that colloquialism built in yet. 
to your point, that's because people don't really understand like how it's working right now. I think we're looking at two to five years before this is sort of embedded into being like very useful for normal people every day. I think the other piece, and we've touched on this in Gen Z before, is the computing costs for all of this are pretty significant and real. And, you know, we're just coming off climate week in New York. And the conversation around the environmental concerns for AI is still quite quiet. And I anticipate in the next year or so, people are going to realize that all of this takes a lot of energy. And translating videos at the blink of an eye and the touch of a button is something that right now is pretty computationally intensive. So I think that will need to reach a place of better efficiency before it can really scale out just from a cost perspective. That's actually a great point. I always liked the conversation around, oh, crypto is so energy intensive, which it can be. Definitely can be. Mining is very intensive. But I'm like, have you ever like calculated the energy cost of cash or something like that? And similarly, I think AI uses so much compute. I remember last year, there was a stat that I saw that like the average Google search versus the average ChatGPT search was like a 75 times difference in terms of the amount of energy. I do think they'll get more efficient of course, with the way that they do that. But yeah, it's really energy intensive right now. So I think that will also be a factor in terms of even if it is possible, it might not be affordable right now unless people just sort of get used to paying for a bunch of these subscriptions, which as you and I know, that's how HeyGen works. That's how Eleven Labs works. That's how ChatGPT Plus works. Like all of these, you need your subscriptions. So are we going to see bundling? Are we going to see people with a ton of different subscriptions? Let's see where that happens. And that kind of brings me to something that has been very top of mind for us over the last few months, which is our friends in Hollywood. Sam, what do you make of the potential strike ending? Uh, I heard about this like yesterday, the day before. I think it's pretty fascinating. An article just came out in the New York Times. So by the time this podcast is out Monday, we'll know a lot more. But it says that there are key paragraphs that were inserted last night, specifically around AI and that AI was the sticking point for the writers, especially around the things like old scripts and how those might be utilized in the future. And from what it sounds like, and we have not seen these clauses yet, but from what it sounds like is that they have addressed that AI can be a productivity tool, but cannot replace the writers. And I think that's really was the key sticking point. We're waiting to see that stuff get released. But I do wonder, you know, I was thinking about this in the broader spectrum of this strike. My guess is the same types of response are going to lean the actor's way in the SAG strike. And then I think of, for example, some of the recent like Supreme Court and other court stuff around IP rights and ownership around derivatives. And almost all of that has been leaning towards the original IP holders. So I think that we're going to just see more and more of this combined with all of the lawsuits coming from comedians and authors and personalities that are hitting I think there's going to have to be a standardization of what it means for AI. And like, don't get me wrong. I don't think this is about us not having these tools. I think it's going to be about a payments rights organization that is making sure that the original source folks who came up with the content are being compensated. What are your thoughts? It's still very nuanced because any form of creativity was influenced and inspired by another form of creativity. And that can go on since the beginning of time, right? So yes, I do think this is perceived right now to be a win against AI. But productivity tools is a broad categorization. 
And I think it's impossible to completely snuff out the potential use cases for AI. And I think that was the sort of position of many of the networks is it's too early for them to even understand how this will be used. For now, I think it's a win. And it's a win for the writers across multiple things that they wanted. They wanted better pay. They wanted protections against AI. They wanted increase in royalties. So I think those things macro like were a big win for them. I think it potentially lays the groundwork for a win for the many thousands of people who are not famous actors, are not famous directors. Maybe they're a makeup artist or a camera worker who have been impacted by these strikes going on for a few months, which has been really challenging for a whole broader swath of people. I think many times and a lot of our listeners and sometimes even us, we forget about how many people are behind the scenes of actually making this stuff happen who are really negatively impacted by these strikes. So I'm excited that it seems like they've reached a resolution. I'm looking forward to the subsequent resolution of some of the other ongoing strikes that have been kind of mixed up in this as well. Yeah. The other thing I think, Avery, is I'm not trying to be snarky about this, but maybe it'll come out that way, which is don't always pay attention to your thought leaders. And I say that because if you were a listener of it could be either the sort of libertarian approach of like the All In podcast with Chamath Palapatia and Jason Calacanis, or it frankly could be like Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. All of them were sort of singing the death knell for the writers and the actors and labor in general. And I do think that there is this sort of interesting collective power of labor that is saying technology shouldn't always be there only to replace us and make you more money. And I think it'll be interesting because we we do think, yes, that the writer strike had gone on for 150 plus days. And the sort of themes, if you listen to any of these thought leaders across so many different podcasts and shows, was that the writers were delusional and that they weren't going to get any and anything they want. And this is just the era of AI. And I think that when you see how much the studios have been hurting also by not being able to create as much content, you're seeing that they rely on good content, right? Like a Squid Games creates so much more shareholder value than an AI-driven derivative of a dating show. And so great writers and great actors and really the creator economy, great creators will make things that are worth paying attention to. And I think that is also a win for all of us in many respects. I also think though, to your point, and you're right, that every bit of creativity is derivative from something that's inspired you. I think the real difference with something like this is, let's call it the tale of the two spikes is that if you said generate a script for me in the style of Spike Lee or Spike Jones, both are so definitive in their styles that you could see AI coming up with something that was a poor man's version of either of them. And that's the thing we don't want versus, yes, if I want something in kind of a Truman Capote style that I can then edit and make into my own, I'm fine with that. It's really when you start taking things that really feel like, oh, this feels like Wes Anderson, but it's not. How is that different? How is Truman Capote like not protected and yet Spike Lee should be? Well, one is just probably copyright law since Truman Capote was writing, you know, in Cold Blood was a long time ago. But the other, I think, is let's look at it through the creator lens. Creators, I think, now have more distinct styles than they probably did way back when. We don't know all of the screenwriters. There were farms of people in Hollywood and in the music industry that were meant to just write in the current style that was trendy. And they would write films, whether it was Westerns or war films. They would write songs, whether they were jingles or pop songs. And those people who knew how to write that stuff were hired back in the 50s and 60s. And that's where you got a lot of, like Motown was basically that for the most part. I think you then start to get 
let's fast forward really far. You get someone like Billie Eilish. And when Billie came out, she was antithetical to what trend was. Her songs were hot and she was very not current in terms of like the Ariana Grandes of the world. And she ended up becoming one of the biggest stars because she zagged when others were zigging. And that's where I just wonder again, I just think of why I pick Spike Jones and Spike Lee specifically is because they do have a very strong voice in their work. There are most writers we don't know anything about. And most of those writers probably could have derivative work based on theirs. But I do think anyone who has a, a distinct style might have a little bit more power to go to a chat GPT and say, this version of do the right thing that someone created by basically copying mine is not acceptable. I think there are still those farms of people who are just making shows that they know are going to be popular because people have an insatiable desire for content and vanilla. And I think that creativity has always been and will always be zigging when everybody else is zagging. And whether you're talking about Elvis or Billie Eilish, it's the same idea of there are these disruptive creators who shock the world by their like sort of style and their creativity. And I think that that's happened since the dawn of time. Copyright laws have changed. And today's creators are rightly so more thinking ahead about how this type of thing can happen because they've seen generations of how royalties work and how things happen over time. And that can be such a major revenue stream. Things can get popular decades after they were written. Like the Black Panther example is one of my favorite ones, right? Like that just became popular like decades after it was written. So I think it's an ongoing problem. It's a very nuanced problem. I'm not an entertainment lawyer or expert, but I'm very excited to hear the strikes might be coming to an end. And I hope the same for SAG-ACTRA because I think that humanity benefits when we have creativity. And I hope that both parties can come to a resolution that makes sense. And I agree with you. I think some, especially folks in the tech world, were really writing off the power of the writers who do, you know, Yellowstone's one example that keeps coming up just because it's so hot right now. People got to get their Yellowstone. And Taylor Sheridan literally has 55 shows right now on Paramount Plus. And I think that is the thing, which is, it's kind of like the James Patterson effect, right? Which is Taylor probably has a giant team of writers writing in his style, and he's creative directing at that point. And I think that's also something where I don't think you would get the same output if he was just sitting with like a bunch of chat GPT windows open and trying to write his war story versus his Western story versus his country boy goes to the city story. So I think that is the opportunity that creativity survives sometimes despite. And with that said, technology, especially in the creator world, is an accelerant, right? So, you know, I think of all the people who like are on TikTok and will get 200,000 views on a video only because they also use the exact same soundtrack that is the trending audio track. We need to have a session on TikTok. I think the TikTokification of everything is so real. And maybe we should have somebody on from TikTok, actually. This would be focused on our creator pillar. But I think we need to have something on that because TikTok is like the new TV. Yes, we should go for Sophia. Sophia heads business at TikTok. And she would be wonderful on here. We'll make some calls. And Sophia, if you're listening... We're hitting up. Let's make that happen. All right, let's quickly jump to NFT stories. Yes, NFTs are still around. One of them would have us doubt that. Um, but the first one I saw this week was Ducati, the motorcycle brand, is actually releasing its first NFT collection. Still here, September 2023. It's $100 per piece, 5,000 pieces. One of the things they did, which I think I like compared to, say, when Playboy tried to do it a couple of years ago, is they actually did go into their archive and are tokenizing things like classic illustrations of motorcycles. Love. 
Yeah, exactly. And using those then as a token of membership into the club. What I don't like is it's still one of those things like in the future, you may be able to do X, Y, and Z. So there isn't really anything that they're promising other than this token. But I did sort of like that we're still seeing a pretty steady stream of these brands coming in. And in the article I read, which we'll put in the show notes from Digiday, the thing that I thought was really interesting was it said about five years ago, Ducati really started to look at how to curate its own community better. And they're using this as one of those pillars, which is the exact right way to think of NFTs and the power of this or an immersive world or any of this stuff is you get to go direct to your community. Any thoughts on uh, motorcycles? One, I haven't thought about Ducati in a few years. I had a boyfriend in college who had a Ducati. So shout out to him. That was my first experience with motorcycles. I am personally terrified of them. But I think that this collection is a really bold move by the brand. Accessible price point, $100 for a luxury brand. They do have a really rabid community of fans, people who are super into it, big collector culture. So I think it makes sense. The timing is certainly unusual, just given like where market perception is around NFTs right now. But I wish them the best on this drop. It'll be interesting to see how long this goes on for if they need to shift to an open edition or something like that. I still see so many brands like kind of following this formula from like two years ago, that is it makes it hard to win. And whenever like we're advising our partners, we're like, how can we make this a win no matter what, right? Like, this is a good idea. You've got some great history, we're going to have some people who are really into it. But the pressure of a certain amount that you're publicly sharing is just not something that we do in any other form of selling items. So I'm curious when that will sort of get like rebooted, because I feel like scarcity was such a selling point in the past couple of years. And I think that that's shifting to more of uh, something that might be a little bit more behind the scenes if I was planning a mint launching in fall of 2023. Let me ask you just one question, because I think you are the exact person who can answer this, which is when I look at something like this, there is a part of me that thinks maybe they began this in 2021. They definitely did. I didn't work with them, but I just feel like they must have. Right. And I think that's part of it is that so many large corporations and entities and brands work so slow that they actually don't let themselves take advantage of current trend when current trend is happening. And then it seems like an afterthought. And I do wonder if this is more about the strategic opportunities for brands themselves to pivot quicker and to be more nimble as an organization than it is about whether this is the right time. Yeah. You know, I think that it's funny. I was just on a call with a client. We were sort of talking about something that we just decided to put on hold because timing is everything with all of this stuff, right? Sometimes that means you need to move fast, hit a deadline. Sometimes you're like, ah, you know, let's sort of plan the right window. I think that this is probably something that they've been looking at for years. I think the idea and the rationale is solid and they've got a really cool creative collection. And it's probably something they're like, okay, now we have to push ahead and do it. I think for some brands though, you also have to like kind of avoid that like sunk cost fallacy. It's like, hey, we've put all this time into it. And it's like, okay, great. Sometimes that means you have to put it on the shelf. When I was at Google, we used to do whole campaigns like fully produced that were amazing. They're like, eh, this just isn't good. This isn't the time. This isn't the right minute for it. And let's put it on the shelf. And sometimes we'd revive them. It's actually funny because during COVID, we started dusting off a lot of things that had been on that shelf for a while. Yeah. And we're like, actually, we did the shoot that we didn't think was that amazing. But now it makes sense because it was shot at a home or whatever. Now we have content. Yeah, exactly. And now we've got this content that we can reuse in this new way. So I think it's an astute observation. And then Sam, I've also got to get your take on speaking of the tides turning. Rolling Stone recently published a piece that said, only 5% of NFTs have value. What do you make of that? Well, I loved how they framed it that basically all of your NFTs are worthless. It was sort of the title of the article, which then, of course, within the NFT community went very viral. 
because people are then putting up $200,000 NFTs. And I say, oh, I guess it's worthless right now. It was really interesting to me to see this for two reasons. One, I mean, look, media wants some clickbait, and this is a very clickbait article. But Rolling Stone, we all have memories. Not that long ago, Rolling Stone had the board apes on its cover, had had its own NFT drop. We're kind of proclaiming this new era of artist and fan collective action through NFTs. And this article just really turned the tides on that in a way that like it has not been that long. And it just feels a little bit disingenuous to be just like, let's always chase the thing that we want to talk about today. Rolling Stone, like, let's be real, especially this past week or two weeks, has had his own big issues with some of its own brand challenges with its founder, Jan Wetter. So, you know, like not saying this is a distraction from that, but I do think that this was one of those things where it's like, of course, the article can get written and can write itself. But we've all known, Gary, your partner has said forever that most NFTs are going to be worth nothing in the same way that most AI companies in the end are going to be worth nothing. Most products and most small businesses in the end are worth nothing. Most publishers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the way it works in the business and this cream of the crop gets amazing. So I don't know. I just thought it was a little bit of like a too easy gotcha article that is there for the clickbait more than anything else. What were your thoughts on seeing it? I mean, Rolling Stone's job is to get eyeballs and catchy headlines get eyeballs. And I'm sure this is part of their strategy. They, not a year ago, featured board apes on their cover. They dropped a collection that worked with a number of different artists. The Lisa Mayer and her team from Boss Beauties, they did some stuff with the Dell Fellows crew. Like they worked with a bunch of independent artists, which I thought was really nice. I think that launched at Super Bowl of 2022. So they've definitely been in the mix. I think it would have been interesting to hear their own perspective of like, as a brand, I would have respect it like, hey, we jumped into this and we've decided we didn't like it for XYZ. That wasn't really the take, which leads me to believe these were probably two different teams. One team that might have been focused on like business development and one that's focused on editorial. Sam, you know how that goes. I do. And I think we try to avoid that a little bit at Coindesk and not always successfully. I'm sure there are some people think. But yeah, I don't know. I also think that while everyone is not dropping an NFT collection anymore and hoping to make millions of dollars, four weeks ago, we saw Sam Spratt close his monument game project that was $1.8 million. We saw DK Motion with Onchain Summer and Coinbase, and they did like over a million dollars in an open edition. I think we're still seeing some great successes here. Yeah. And we've seen a ton of like really interesting brands come in during this time. I'm just not a price speculator, and I don't think we should be looking at technology in that way. I don't think anyone ever joined Instagram thinking they were going to get rich on it when they first came on. They just liked playing. And so I would like us to be thinking about Web3 in general like that, whether it's immersive worlds, NFTs, DAOs, or anything like that. The more we kind of put price speculation, the worse things get. I completely agree. Well, Sam, let's get into it. Always love catching up on the news, but let's get into the show. Yes, our next guest, Jess Chin. Jess is amazing. She has worked at three of the most historic brands in the world. She will tell us all about that. She now is the CMO of Alderaan Foundation, which is really trying to like focus on payments and refi and some of the just like really cutting edge use cases of crypto. And I'm just really excited to talk to Jess. So we'll get into it after the break. Right. We want to welcome Jess Chin, CMO of the Algorand Foundation, to Gen C. I don't know if she'll give me the credit, but I'm going to take credit for being one of Jess's first Web3 friends. We met on some cold night in 
some month in January or whatever in New York years ago. And she was uh, asking about this new technology and we had a long conversation, which was amazing. And we've been friends ever since. So Jess, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, Sam, you can get the award of being one of my first friends in Web3. You have had quite a career. You know, just as we think of your positioning here at Gen C, yes, you are the CMO at Algorand Foundation. We'll get into what that is a little bit later. But the show really focuses on kind of like how Web2 brands primarily are looking at the Web3 world. And I thought it would be great to have you on because you have played amazing roles at some of the most storied Web2 and traditional businesses there are. So I'm not going to spoil it, but I would love for you to give our audience a little bit of your career arc and how you got to then make a decision to come into Web3. Yeah, I'm really excited to kind of share a bit. To frame it, I would say overall, my ethos and my passion has always been about finding and building connection points between audiences and brands and really finding the white spaces there. I started out in big tech, Apple. I was an expat there, really looking at retail expansion and online expansion in Asia. Stayed in Shanghai for many years. It was an incredible experience. And when I think about that, it really was this more of a technical connection points between digital and physical was really what I was focused on. And I think from there, I really wanted to move from like the technical side to the emotional, especially the emotional storytelling side. So I had the privilege of joining Nike. I'm a huge athlete. I play basketball. I'm a runner. And for me, like my dream brand has always been to work there. And so I had an incredible opportunity to, to join the global marketing, consumer marketing team and really help them think about digital experiences, help run the World Cup campaign in 2018, worked with the likes of Neymar and Mbappe and Ronaldo, thinking about access points around storytelling. And again, that emotional piece is really where I learned the importance of emotional appeal and insights. And it was honestly an incredible time. And more recently, I was at Meta right at the cusp of joining WhatsApp. So we had 2.5 billion users, but we hadn't really built the brand. And so really thinking about both the functional and the emotional of connecting these consumers who loved the technical aspects, but didn't really understand like what this could mean for their lives and this idea of deep connections that lead to progress and really be able to tell that story of just the diverse, incredible users around the world. So that really was, I would say, like that next stepping stone of really understanding that my ethos and really leaning into that passion. And for Web3, I just feel like it's so interesting because it's always about increasing those touch points between audiences and brands. I think it's been definitely an adventure. We'll talk more about it. But I think it's really about finding new ways to connect people with each other and then connect people with brands and creating more touch points. I'm really excited. It's definitely been a journey, but it's been a really good one so far. Sounds like an amazing journey. And before we dive fully into crypto and Web3 and all that fun stuff, between Apple, Nike, and Meta, what do you see as sort of common traits of what it means to be a transformational brand? You have experience at all these amazing places. What's the, like the secret success that you've seen happen across those three giants? I have three. And I first have to start with this one because it is truly the bread and butter across these three brands. I think first is obsession with product. I cannot tell you the insane amount of research dollars and consumer insights that go into inform like world-class engineers and really thinking about how to not build this product in a vacuum and the design processes that I've seen across all three companies and also at Algorand. 
I have a really interesting anecdote. When I was working at Nike, I got to work really closely with a lot of the product teams and they were obsessed with researching. We were researching for a sneaker for Asia, a certain place in Asia. Actually, I won't go into too much detail there. But when we think about how granular they would study those consumer needs, it was insane. They would consider the concrete mix of the pavement, the athlete, like shape, form, air quality, all the things to really just even think about like the size of the foam in the shoe and just the amount of time that we would spend with athletes in and around us in the office and and the obsession of informing that product with consumer insights was incredible. And I would say secondly, is just really around their focus, that consistency in messaging. I feel like blockchain has a bit to learn from this. I think sometimes we try to be all things to all people, but I think there's something really to be said about like consumers, they see so many things they won't remember unless you just like pound them over and over and over again with like a singular point, a singular message. And finally, I just think this idea of like things being built on human insights and human truths is something that I felt like I really, really came to realize and learn at Nike. For the World Cup in 2018, one of the big insights that we realized is we kept talking to both like senior and incredible athletes all the way to like just your everyday football player. One thing that we realized is, you know, good athletes, they listen to their coach. But great athletes, they listen to themselves. And that really became the ethos of an incredible campaign. And everything that we live, breathe, and told, that story came from that insight. Jess, I don't want to put you on the spot, but we've had enough conversations where you've told me some like fascinating interactions you've had or been adjacent to with Steve Jobs, with Phil <laughs> Knight, with Zuck. What can you share about, you know, how close was your office to them? How many times did you hang out in the elevator? Just like, what can you give us insights onto these guys? Okay, I'm going to, I'll share a few light touches. I might even drop in a story or two, but, you know, let's see if they stay here. Spill the tea, spill the tea. (laughs) (laughs) I think the first, I mean, yeah, at Apple specifically, I ended up literally being right across, like there was a hallway and then like my office and Steve Jobs' office was like right in the front of like, we call the infinite loop one. And I remember seeing him also hearing stories of like, if he was an elevator with you, like try to get out immediately because he was known to ask questions. And if you didn't answer well, it could be like, goodbye. That's your job, right? And so I, I like avoided the elevators at all times. But this one, I don't call it unfortunate instance. I still remember I was on a Blackberry because at the time I refused to use the iPhone. And Steve Jobs walks out, I'm sitting there outside on this Blackberry. And, you know, he is obsessed with everyone in the company using the product, as I was saying earlier. And he literally walked, stopped in front of me, looked at me, looked at my Blackberry in my head. I was like, I'm going to get fired today. And then he looked at me and then he just walked away. But he glared at me for a hot minute and I almost flipped out. But I came out unscathed. That was like the scary story of Steve Jobs. The non-scary story was I was working on a really cool project with Apple and had branded it, had named it. It was a very simple, like early idea. He actually walked by when we were presenting to the CFO and he actually said, he's like, what's that? And he actually asked about it. He's like, oh, that's super interesting. For me, like that is the ultimate compliment to have him say that. And then yes, Phil Knight, I ran into him also in elevators, which there seems to be a common theme. Phil Knight, he was just a really incredible, incredible founder, CEO. And he had some oatmeal cookies that he was like sharing with folks. And that was our main, like just sweet interaction. And I don't have actually any stories of Zuck to share, but I'll go in that order of some fun interactions with folks. You know, it's so funny because 
when I was coming up in the advertising world and we had sold a big chunk of our first agency to Omnicom. And the big lore was that John Wren, who ran Omnicom, had once seen the secretary, the receptionist at BBDO's offices, drinking a Coke or a Diet Coke at her desk on her lunch break and comes in and immediately fires her because Pepsi was one of their biggest clients. And he was like, we can't have our biggest client walk in and see our receptionist having a Diet Coke. So the fact that you got away unscathed with your BlackBerry is like, that could have been a murder scene right there. It could have been terrible. I mean, brands are like famous for stories like that with like Clorox, from what I've heard, and Unilever surrounding the Unilever headquarters with like Clorox out of home billboards just to mess with them. Fun aside, Clorox was a client of mine once. And for a summer, I had to play the role on radio of being the Germinator, which was a campaign we were running for them. And then our guy, our actor got sick. So I had to go on and play the role of the guy who would come in and tell you how many germs were on like the board at the radio station or the microphone. Sam, you have such a great voice. Why did you not tell us before that you were a former voice actor? <laughs> Your talent. I was not part of the union and I didn't want to be a scab. So. It's <laughs> hilarious. So Jess, you know, besides your experience at these massive companies, you've also had experience sort of advising and working with a number of smaller companies, a number of startups. For the founder of today, what do you think that they can learn from some of these big brands? Is it that consumer obsession? Is it something else? Yeah, it's a really great point. I feel like the three above are true, but there's a few, especially for a lot of the small companies I've advised that have really rung true. Um, I would just say a few. One is making sure that you're actually meeting a real world need. Like product market fit is a real thing. I don't know. I can't tell you how many founders and entrepreneurs I've seen that just develop a product without really, really caring deeply about what problem is solving. And there's a lot of factors to that. I think tied to that is like feedback loops, really building in, again, that listening on the ground to your actual real audience that you're trying to reach. Dog fooding is a very real thing that is true in big companies. We incentivized engineers and not just engineers to dog food all of our products, every feature. Can you define dog food for the audience? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's not eating food <laughs> of dogs. It is actually really listening and just beta testing products to ensure and get out all the kinks and also learn and iterate on the product to make sure it's actually serving a real problem, serving the real need. So dog fooding is something I highly, highly recommend, even if you're not technical, to really try and test and use every possible product that is adjacent to yours as well. Um, and then I think thirdly, my mentor, one of my incredible mentors in my one of my previous roles always asked me this question, how are we zigging when others are zagging? And for me, I really love that because it's all about how can we have an outsized voice and you can actually get a lot more brand ROI when, you know, you're not just being vanilla and looking like everyone else in the market and really choosing to be fierce or bold or in so many ways different. I think a lot about Duolingo's social handle. I think it was founded by an intern, but the kind of fandom they've driven through that handle with just like pure tone of voice for that social handle is a great example of how to use it while others zag. I think finally, I talked already about insights, but this idea of punching and hugging, also for my mentor, how are you punching your target audience in terms of something really cut through, something that really hits, like think functional, but then how are you also hugging them with like emotional storytelling? How are you hugging them, making them feel cared for? 
the punch and the hug is a really great way to kind of test out. It's a great framework. Everyone can learn from the punch and the hug. Yes. That's basically mine and Avery's whole relationship, frankly. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Jess, when I think of your career, right, you are in consumer product, innovation, technology. At WhatsApp, your role was really focused on privacy also at the enterprise level. It feels like when you put all those together, like it was predetermined that crypto would be a place that you would feel comfortable because all of those things are part of what we do here, right? And so I'm just wondering, you know, kind of prior to taking your role, what were you thinking about blockchain? Why was it interesting to you to even have the first conversation? You know, were you playing in the space or not playing in the space? I think there's a lot of tension between Web 2 and Web 3. So I was wondering, like, how blockchain crypto got on your radar? Yeah, it's a really great point. I would say for me personally, it was really about, I'm a very relational leader, I think. And also a lot of my roles really have been through just really meaningful relationships. I followed Web3 mainly through the incredible friendships that I had of people who were experts deep in the field, like years and years in the field and following their journeys. And I'll be honest, while following their journeys and the ups and downs, I was always like, you know what? Three more years later, I'll come in. That's kind of how I thought about it. And that was earlier last year, I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to do this like two roles from now, like I'm going to dive in about two roles from now. And then I had the opportunity to meet Stacey Warden, who's our current CEO at Algorand Foundation. And I would say all my friends at that point had all been men in the crypto space. And she was the first woman I met. And she's not your ordinary woman. She's incredible, an incredible leader, a thought leader, Milken Institute, JP Morgan. And also just a champion also for women leaders at large. And so meeting her, I just really felt like there was a click. She met me and she was like, why don't you join the team? <laughs> Pretty immediately, actually, when we met. And I think we just had a lot of shared conviction, shared values, shared perspective of where and how blockchain should be used. And therefore, also the story should be told. And from there, yeah, I decided, you know, what, this is the right moment for me to come in. How's it been so far? You've been there for nine months. You've been the CMO of Algorand Foundation for that time. How is it working at a sort of decentralized company? Is it a fully decentralized company? Maybe share a little bit with Gen C what Algorand is all about. I also want to share about the space itself because there's been a lot of just like learnings and differences that I've just like also kind of experienced. I think first, there's a lot of brands that are very personality driven. It's very hype focused and I think it can sometimes feel a little bit transient and it's sometimes hard for me to keep up. I would say specifically at Algorand, I think where I've really enjoyed is this desire. And I think strangely, a collective desire to really build a lasting brand. I've really appreciated that because I think this idea of like longevity, intergenerational mindset of purpose that is like greater. I think Twitter is important, but like being greater than just the everyday potential echo chamber of what that could be. I think it's been in terms of decentralization, I cannot tell you how one, how much teams everywhere around the world, how incredible that has been. It's actually surprising to me that there's not really a central hub ever feeling. It's just like this idea of like peer to peer is like very real. I think my past structures where I come from a place of very strong structure versus culture. And I think I am grateful to find that structure does not dominate the conversation and then also decisions being made are a lot more very, very much shared. And so that's been kind of a learning experience. And also the deep dive into this community deciding and moving us along and the idea that like this brand isn't static, but actually it's 
the brand that is our community. The community is the brand. That has been a learning for me. I definitely feel like even though I come from a lot of brands that say that we care so much about community, it's true to a certain extent, but I also feel like I haven't experienced it truly where I think before a lot of, even though we said the brand is the community, it's still very one directional. But here, every single day, I need to spend the time and energy and hours really thinking about where they're directionally headed, having them connect more with one another to make just conscious recommendations and thoughts and actually listening on a day-to-day basis is something quite, I would say, like challenging, but also refreshing for me as a leader. And so in that sense, I have really enjoyed, there's some incredible people in this community and also just in the community at large in this industry. And I feel like there's a lot of ways for us to evolve and not be that one directional kind of just single ad campaign that I'm kind of used to. Jess, I think that people sometimes read too much of the headlines around how much is this cartoon JPEG? How much did someone make because they invested early in this token? I think that we sometimes forget part of what blockchain's role as an innovation is about reimagining payments and speed of payments and disrupting fees. That it's about the idea of self-sovereign identities and the ability to own your own assets on all your platforms. The things that actually truly make a difference in a world where we are being monetized all day long by the platforms that you used to work for, that I've worked for in the past. So yeah, how do you see like the opportunity of blockchain to truly solve some of these big problems that, you know, were created in the world we all, the three of us all grew up working in? I will say that this particular question is like such a big passion point of mine because actually, I guess I'm sharing it here. But so much of the brand strategy of where I feel like Algorand needs to go and really represents actually is this idea of like real world solutions at scale, that we're solving real problems that are deeply felt by people. And so for me, and I, again, think a lot about functional and emotional, the technical stuff I think is incredible learning about it and what problems that it solves around provenance, disintermediation, getting rid of the middleman and also identity. But for me, the emotional story around just like agency and like true control, because I, again, as a marketer from those other larger places, a lot of the marketing was, our core insight was around control. And a lot of the selling points that we gave was like, have control over your data. And, but it wasn't true to a certain extent while we were saying that, because ultimately Web2 is still dominated by gatekeepers in many ways. And, and these companies are giving you a shared rented economy of your data and and it's not really true ultimate ownership and control. And so I think that idea of agency is incredibly important. And I think being someone who has, you know, come from more of the consumer side, I love the idea that now you can actually own and decide like what you have to access, things like personal tickets, access to new markets and own digital copies of the book because, you know, Amazon currently just gives you a sense of that control through Kindle, but it's not really yours. And also for me personally, I think these examples get a lot more profound when you're thinking about developing markets. As someone who's lived abroad and lived among just people who really you know, are affected by government policies and just economy, current economics, and a lot is out of their control. And, and that, again, why I feel like this idea of control is super important. And so I think about places like LATAM, India, where specifically at Algorand, we're seeing a ton of adoption actually probably way more adoption than a lot of the Western markets in the Middle East as well. And I think for me, two of my favorite 
projects that exist at Algorand. One is this group called Hisab Pay. They are a platform that's built on, on Algorand. But what they do is they issue digital fiat deposits. And these digital payments normally come in from like international organizations like UNICEF or WFP, but it can get very frozen or paralyzed and the assets end up not being able to go to these Afghani women and refugees. And so they built this to facilitate like these digital payments. And we're seeing these women, I'm hearing these stories on the ground of these women who are able to like buy and sell goods. And I really do hope to meet them one day, actually, and like be on the ground. I will do that next year to meet them on the ground and see them actually like have a completely different economy and experience and livelihood compared to what they had before. And the second one is this incredible group called AgroToken, and they enable farmers to tokenize greens. And they're based out of LATAM. They transform them into digital assets that they can trade, exchange for supplies. It's just kind of a similar concept. But since they've launched this platform, they've scaled from 1,000 tons of soy to 250,000 in just a few months, like 250,000 tons of soy. And this is all across Argentina, Brazil, and a few other of those markets. And so it's secure, frictionless, it allows these farmers to actually have a lot more efficient and reliable process. And so stories like that is where I'm like, okay, this is starting to make more sense to a former consumer marketer to really hear the stories of like real human impact on the ground. You just said a lot of amazing things all at once, Jess, but I want to sort of dive a little bit deeper into what you're sharing about Algorand's growth outside of the US. Because I think most of our listeners are American. Everything they're hearing is bear market, down, slowing growth. And I do think that's true in the US. And I think outside of the US, that couldn't be further than the truth because we see explosive growth happening in APAC, in LATAM, in other markets where this technology is not facing the same level of regulatory concerns and secondarily solving like real world day-to-day problems for more people who might have currency instability in their market or various things that provide a real immediate use case for crypto and for blockchain. Can you talk a little bit more about Algorand's strategy as it relates to sort of global versus domestic in the US? Yes. I mean, I also just want to say as well, like specifically for when you think about the India market, I think I just saw some data points come out saying that India is the fastest mass adoption happening right now in the world, which is incredible knowing that some of the challenges that they face. It's incredible knowing the challenges, but at the same time, India is the most populated country, right? And I you know, have a very deep, sweet spot for the Indian culture, as some of y'all might have guessed from my last name. It's surprising, but it's not surprising. Like, and if you go there, you're like, oh, wow, like the vast majority of these people are unbanked. A lot of them are kind of coming online all at once. And their population is just so massive. There's like 36 cities in India that have populations of multiple millions of people, and you've never even heard of them. So like just a few of these sort of cities and markets and pockets picking it up can like really be transformational from an adoption perspective. I fully agree. There's like some crazy stats, which I will quote the source because, you know, it is what it is. But 56% of India businesses are moving towards blockchain or at least looking into it. The India Web3 market is expected to reach, again, these are forecast numbers, but like 1 billion by 2032. There is just a lot going on in these developing markets. And for us specifically, I would say, I think about it in a three-pronged kind of approach. One, we are doubling, doubling down. I've said this to other people, but this is the year of the devs. In India, in terms of a developer market and also those who are interested in Web3, we're just seeing so many come through and be hyper-interested in learning and comprehension and base education. And education is in Algorand's DNA in terms of our bread and butter, where we're founded. 
MIT. And so being able to bring that level of education and partnership is incredibly important to us of up-leveling. And then deep government and partnership and enterprise connections. We were one of the first to partner with, they have a incredible innovation hub on the ground in India based out of Hyderabad. Shout out Andhra Pradesh. That's right. <laughs> Actually, I think it's just called Andhra now. This state recently changed names. Andhra. Yes, yes, for Andhra. But in the city of Hyderabad, there's all the big companies are there. I mean, you name it, Google, Microsoft, et cetera. But we were so excited to be a part of really establishing blockchain innovation in this space when the government's looking at it and had a lot of officials present as well and kind of partnership. And then, of course, we have a lot of incredible advisors that are very well known in the Web2 technical space that brought Web2 technicality into India and are continuing to think about Web3 and what that could mean for India as an economy. So that kind of move is really incredibly important to us. And then finally, real world impact. We actually, this is a side plug. We have an incredible summit coming up called the Global Impact Summit that was held in India. We have hundreds of developers as well as policymakers and India enterprises coming in and speaking, meeting, and also having some incredible projects kind of being built that really solve real world problems that India faces so they can really see and feel the difference that blockchain can make. And we've already made some really significant inroads, especially for women. And that's something I am just so deeply passionate about. We're partnered with Seva, which is an incredible organization in India. And yeah, just really seeing how we can, again, lift all boats there. So I think that's kind of a three-pronged strategy of how we've been thinking about markets like that. There's a lot of three prongs. And I feel like that structure comes through in the way that you communicate. There's a lot of three pronged approaches, which I love. It's the corporate training. And it's a very clear way to think. I love that anecdote around Hyderabad. I, you know, for our community, most folks don't know that actually Hyderabad, they refer to it as Cyberbad. It is like the tech hub of India in a lot of ways. I didn't know this till I went there for the first time in 2014. And I realized there's tens of thousands of Googlers when I went into the office and getting to know like various tech folks there. It is a thriving digital ecosystem and no surprise that they're embracing blockchain. They're finding ways to integrate this into their tech ecosystem as well. That's awesome that you've been there, by the way. I also think like you guys are focused on India. Some other folks are really focused on Africa. I, I was speaking to a lot of people in the last week who just had come back from Korea Blockchain Week and Token 2049. And everyone like unanimously says the energy in all of those places is so exciting compared to what we're dealing with in the US, in Canada, some parts of Europe, where it feels a little like we're feeling a little beaten down. And that's clearly, one, just the regulatory environment. But two, I think that places where this technology can be transformational get excited because they're looking at the transformation opportunity. They're not looking at the like, oh, we're all going to get rich, which is part of the branding problem that crypto has. And so I guess my question for you, Jess, is you are a marketer at heart. Like crypto, at least in Western countries, has a branding problem at the moment. I think we're known a little too much for get rich quick and for scams and for you know, broken promises. As a marketer who's marketed technology, product, kind of emotionality, what do you think your suggestions are for kind of getting the world to see crypto differently? Yeah, I have a few. A three-pronged strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing just turns on without me trying. <laughs> I think I'll have a different answer next year, to be honest, since I would say I'm still relatively in it. But I would say first, I think a lot about just collective honesty and owning some of the realities that we face and truth as an industry. I think recognizing the failures and own up to what needs to evolve would be a really powerful statement. 
as a collective. Secondly, thinking a lot about code switching and being more comfortable code switching and really building bridges. Because I think language often determines culture and really can help control culture. And so I think the language that we use, we just have to be a lot more thoughtful about how we are defining, how we are enabling comprehension and enabling education. And so code switching, I think, is incredibly important. And of course, mass market use cases that really demonstrate the true benefit. I think we need a lot more of those so that people really can grasp what this is. I think all of these things are in the intermediate. But in terms of the long term, I think Sam and I have talked about this. The ultimate win for crypto is when this whole thing is invisible to users. Like they don't know the thing that they're interacting with. Just like when you're Venmoing, you don't know all the systems that go underneath. I think that would be when we know that we've overcome that giant hump and really overcome our branding problem is when it's completely invisible and it's facilitating what people need to do to get to the things that they need. It's like your boy, Steve. Like, right, I have no idea how this works, but I know that it works and it's amazing and I love it. Yes, that's what consumers expect nowadays. Like you cannot go less than that. I think that's exactly right. I would say finally, I think this is more of like a human take, but in terms of diverse voices, kind of goes back to a little bit my Stacy story, but people like Avery, people, I've met so many incredible women now in this space, but I just feel like we need a lot more, especially from the global South, especially from the developing markets. I still feel like what's so loud right now is the Western majority. And we just need more underrepresented voices to show, tell, build, develop, and we need to be listening to them because right now, Yeah, the loudest voices in the end are kind of more focused on the things that I don't think we should be focusing on as an industry. Awesome. Jess, you've been such an incredible guest. Last question. And just as you sort of look into your crystal ball of the future, what are you excited about both at Algorand Foundation and at Web3 in general, if you think about like the next one, three, five-year horizon? I am excited. I think there are moments where I don't, I'll be like very vulnerable and real. Like there are moments where I don't feel excited and I feel very overwhelmed. But on the days that are maybe days like this one, I'm just so encouraged by the number of builders that are building, collaborating, and something meaningful is actually coming from it. Something that is actually moving the needle for people who need it the most. And so I feel like in so many ways, the industry is like, I think we're in like our awkward middle school years right now. We don't really know who we are. We don't know like how to talk about ourselves. I think in some ways we have an identity crisis. And I think we're at the cusp of like maturing and really like, this is what we're here for. And this is like the good that we can do. And so I feel like as we kind of, as people put their heads down, build meaningful solutions, I think, yeah, the future is bright is my hope. And I still believe in my heart of hearts, blockchain is revolutionary. We're going to look back and laugh at the cartoon animals and really see that, you know, we left the world a better place. So on that note, at Algorand, I just think, regardless if you're a developer or not, I think get involved, get building. I just want to invite, we have some really like incredible announcements that were slightly just teased at Token 2049. But there are some really like meaningful ones. I want to plug our um, hackathon. We just launched a build a bull. Again, I love the play on words. Hackathon to invite all devs to come build, come pitch, get access to VCs, get access to mentors, as well as we've just announced as well that if you're a Python developer, AlgoKit 2.0 is coming in Q4 in a big way. And we're very excited about the different kinds of languages that are going to drive more accessibility in general in the space that is really well needed. And then finally, if you need a really slick, incredible DX secure wallet, we have Para, we have some incredible new ecosystem features that are going to be coming in in the next few months. So I would just say like, would love to connect with folks who are here and are excited about what's happening. You can follow me on uh, my handle or DM me. Would love to have a chat. All right, Jess, 
So here's my free prong. Thank you for <laughs> coming on the podcast. Number one, thank you for sharing your insights, punches and hugs. We're going to know and use this framework moving forward. Number two, we won't reveal the location you're at, but it is beautiful. And I wish I was outside in that location right now. And three, your neckwear game and jewelry <laughs> game is on point today, as people will see in the videos. So thank you for also dressing for us. Clearly, I did not because <laughs> I'm about to go to a workout. So uh, thank you for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. And this is fantastic. We didn't even think that about your quarters up until you just said it, Sam. <laughs> I know. We don't talk about this, Avery. <laughs> you look great. And thank you guys both. This was so, so great. Thank you, Jess. So fun. So amazing to hear your stories. We're going to have to talk more about your journey abroad and all the amazing things that you're doing in India later. So we'll catch up on that separately. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. Avery, thank you for dropping all of your Indian knowledge in that pod. I keep thinking how little I know about the rest of the world, despite having traveled to a few places. But it sounds like what Algo is doing and what you guys know much more than I is just like the robust opportunities that exist in the world around us. Yeah. Well, I know you're going to Portugal soon, so I'm looking forward to hearing about your trip. I'm not sure that's the same. <laughs> hey, cultural immersion, all angles, Sam. There you go. But Jess was great. Yeah, what do you think? Jess is amazing. It was great to hear her perspective. She's been at some of the best companies in the world, the best marketing organizations. And I loved her commentary around moving from being product-centric to more emotionally driven. Yeah, I also think she highlights, and you know, granted, she was at three companies that all are product-obsessed with Meta, with Nike, and with Apple. And I do think it's something that founders in Web3 need to take away because I honestly don't think there are very many product-obsessed founders, just to be like real. I think there's a lot of hype-obsessed founders. There's a lot of price-obsessed founders. There's a lot of like vision-obsessed founders. But those who are actually building tried-and-true product that may move the needle forward for us, I think they take their eye off the ball too much. That's why I think you need people like Jess coming into the industry who can help be guides and mentors and advisors. And you can say, okay, I get that people are excited, but now what are you going to do to make this thing realize the vision you've sold? Yeah, agreed. And I also, you know, we always call that just consumer obsession. And that I think is the through line of everything that she talked about. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, Avery, it's been an amazing time. Great to see you. I hope you have an amazing week. Always great to see you, Sam. I hope you have a wonderful week as well. Gen Z community, thank you for tuning in. Tell us how amazing you think Jess was in the comments. We should also ask our community, who's building on Algorand? Get to know her and her team. A really, really interesting group of folks and we're very impressed with what they're doing. So uh, we will catch you all next week, Gen Z. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.